From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said, you laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on March 28th, 2023. Thanks to everyone watching and listening, and especially thanks to those here in our live online audience. We're so glad to have you. Um, Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect for everyone. We're so happy to be here with you. And by now we've learned a few things about Zoom. So here are some suggestions we hope that you will help us with. We really believe that storytelling is about the connection between the tellers and the listeners. And here's ways you can help with that. If you are willing to have your video on, we love that. And you can have big visible reactions to connect with the rest of the audience. In fact, Let's do um, a a dry run here. Show me horrified. Good, good job. So um, like that, you get the idea. You can also express reactions in the chat box, which we save and share with the tellers later on. Also put questions that occur to you for the tellers in chat, because usually we have time after the three stories to do a bit of Q&A. So tonight we are bringing you our annual activism show, Always a Favorite. This year we're calling it Social Change. We'll hear stories from Joe Radner, 
Julia O'Connell and Dave Kellum, followed by the Q&A section, and then a short interview of Dave Kellum by David Freiner. Pat Spaulding is actually traveling at the moment, so I am stepping in as your MC. I will introduce each teller to you as we move along. So let's get started with that. Our first teller for the night is Joe Radner. Joe has been studying, teaching, telling, and collecting stories most of her life and performing from Maine to Hawaii to Finland. Although she tends to tell stories about Northern New England, she also shares personal stories, unusual folk tales, and her own modern tales and riffs on classics. After a career at American University, she returned to her home in Maine as a freelance storyteller and oral historian. Her new book will be out in June, Wit and Wisdom, The Forgotten Literary Life of New England Villages. Sounds cool. Tonight, she brings us a true story about her part in a very big social change with Please No Blender. Join me in visibly welcoming Joe. Thank you so much, Amy. I'm thrilled to be here and delighted to, uh, you know, I just left Portsmouth and now I'm back in Portsmouth through the magic of uh, cyberspace. That's great. So how do you decide in the 21st century whether or not to get married? My, we kept, my partner and I kept saying to each other, weddings are for the young. We don't need a blender. We had been together for 19 years and we knew that we would be together for life. We had a home, actually two homes, a house in Maine and a townhouse in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Each of us had adult children who were launched independently in the world. And we were both past the age at which we could have any more. We had everything we needed. We were so lucky, so happy. Marriage, who needs it? And then it was 2004 and the unexpected, the impossible, the unimaginable happened. We could get married. Thanks to its Supreme Judicial Court, Massachusetts became the first state and only the sixth jurisdiction in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. Some of our gay friends poo-pooed the opportunities and marriage is a flawed institution, don't endorse it. But even though we agreed with their criticisms, we thought about it and we decided we wanted that opportunity. Were we really satisfied as second-class citizens? When we thought about all the steps we'd had to take, all the lawyers we had to consult, all the workarounds we had to do just to approach the benefits of civil marriage, it was pretty clear that marriage was better than what we'd patched together, you know, carefully constructed wills, deeds, insurance policies, healthcare proxies, powers of attorney, and then all of that we had to make sure could be valid across state lines. 
And, you know, it wasn't just the big stuff. There were so many littler aggravations and embarrassments. One year, when we were both still living and working in Washington, D.C., we decided to fly up to Maine for a long Labor Day weekend. We got on the plane the end of the day Friday, arrived in Portland, 11 p.m., last flight of the day. You know, you know that hollow feeling of an empty late night airport? That's what it was. And we set off across the linoleum toward a bleary-eyed young man behind the rental counter where we'd reserved a car. We filled out the forms and said, oh, we don't have to pay for a second driver. We're domestic partners. No, not company policy. But we showed our license plates, our license, driver's licenses, identical, identical addresses. No, sorry, not company policy. If a man and a woman, yeah, but not, I, if you want the car, you'll have to pay. We were humiliated and furious. It wasn't the money. It was the disrespect. We didn't want his blankety-blank car. We, we looked at him and we said, if that's your policy, we will not rent your car. And we squared our shoulders, turned around, picked up our suitcases, and walked away. And we were terrified. It was after 11 o'clock on Friday of Labor Day weekend in a very small airport, and we might just have refused the last rental car in the city, and we lived an hour and a half away. All the other passengers seemed to have drained out of the airport. The lights behind all the car rental desks were dim, except for one where there was a woman standing who seemed to be filing some papers. So we started towards her. We tried to look responsible and friendly and awake. Excuse me, um, we noticed you're still here and we wondered if you might have a car available for the weekend. Bless her soul, she had just had a cancellation. Oh, and since we're domestic partners, we don't have to pay for a second driver, right? Right, of course, company policy. We were off and driving in 10 minutes, and we spent the next hour and a half composing an angry letter to that other unenlightened rental company. Aggravations. Yep, we would get married. Now, <clears throat> when it's Supreme Judicial Court, announced its ruling. Couples in Massachusetts were ecstatic. And as the date, May 17th, approached, when legitimate licenses could be issued, Cambridge, the People's Republic of Cambridge, went wild. Volunteers gussied up our old dignified city hall. They wrapped white white organza around the banisters of all of the dignified, graceful mahogany banisters. And the city council, unique in the state, announced that it was going to open for business at 12.01 a.m. 
hundreds of applicants and their supporters who had been in the streets for hours. They're parading back and forth in spangly party hats and tuxedos and flounces. And when the doors opened, they opened to the wild street party. There was sparkling cider, a huge cake donated by a local hotel, and music from the Cambridge Community Chorus. There were a smattering of protesters here and there, but nobody paid any attention. That day, some 262 couples were issued marriage licenses. Among them, Hillary and Julie Goodridge, whose case, Goodridge versus the Department of Public Health, had set forward the ruling. Julie Goodridge said, second only to the birth of our daughter, Annie, this was the happiest day of our lives. And when the reporters asked her what she would like to say to those protesters outside, she said, I'd say to them, come on over to our house for dinner and see how normal and boring and loving we are. The normal and the extraordinary danced together all that day. In Brookline, <clears throat> Miss Ox and Peg Preble got out their best duds, the vintage taffeta, velveteen jackets, and they went outside and climbed on their silver motorcycle and sidecar and zoomed off to the nearest town hall. And when they emerged later on after a, a Justice of the Peace wedding, crowds were cheering and cheering, and they found attached to the back of their motorcycle a big just married placard and a long string of empty cat food cans. And on the seat of the motorcycle, a $25 parking ticket. Sadly, Sue and I were not in Massachusetts on that glorious day. We were on our first trip to Israel. We were cheering from afar, but it gave us a long time to stew over how we wanted to get married. Not, not a, you know, signed papers in the Justice of the Peace offer, that office. That wasn't monumental enough. And not the big fancy do either. We had each had our own weddings. We'd had the dum dum da dum and the guest lists and the costumes and, and the gifts. We had everything we needed. When our friends asked us if we were going to have a wedding, we said what we always said. We really don't need a blender. We wanted a spiritually satisfying ceremony surrounded by beloved people. We wanted to draw in our far-flung family and friends, but we didn't want to give them the extra expense of flying in for just one day of hoopla. Finally, we arranged to use a room at Harvard Hillel. We were the first same-sex marriage at Harvard Hillel. And we invited a handful of close friends and close relatives. We opened our hearts and we sang in a ceremony that was conducted by the rabbi of the Reconstructionist synagogue that we were joining. And we included our distant relatives and friends by asking them, instead of gifts, to send us one small stone and a word or two. And then as part of our ritual, we 
added those stones to a beautiful little box that had been carved from a single piece of curly maple by our friend John Chandler. It was just perfect. We've kept two treasures from our wedding. That box with its enduring stones lives on the mantelpiece in our house in Maine. And in my wallet for 19 years, I have kept a copy of our marriage license just in case. It's in shreds by now, but it could be read if need were. Looking back, I'm very glad we made those choices. But shortly after our wedding, we had a very embarrassing moment. The motor of our blender burnt out and we really did need a blender. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, yes, thanks. Uh, great story and how nice to get tonight started off with um, a story of a big change that we all saw and really couldn't have guessed we would get to. So wonderful. Next up, we have another Mainer joining us, Julia O'Connell. Julia has volunteered since the 1980s to promote renewable energy in many ways, from being on the New Hampshire Governor's Council on Energy, doing solar energy education, weatherization programs, statewide energy fairs, helping install wind monitoring, power at a local college, solarized campaigns, and more. And tonight she is gonna share with us uh, um, uh, one uh, one story from the many that that she is she has uh, lived through with all that. The story she's telling is called "Saving the World Together," and she would like us to know that she wants to dedicate this to her friend and fellow renewable energy proponent, Steve Bilsky, an engineer and wind energy promoter, who always brought a helpful and cheerful attitude to his work his expertise and exclamations of, that's fantastic, will be missed by her and many others. He passed away this past December at the age of 67. So let's welcome Julia with her story, Saving the World Together. There. Well, hello everyone. This is exciting. This is the first time I've done this. Um, so I'm just gonna dive right in. Many years ago, I renovated an old house and I had renovated several homes before. So I really enjoyed doing that, felt up to the challenge. The home had good bones and character. And to that end, the previous owner had painted the rooms black and maroon, but in the bedroom, big lime green polka dots screamed from the walls. The wind blew around the windows, through the kitchen, through the living room, where icicles hung from the inside of the slider. The cold winter air permeated the whole room and including my bed linens, which I would climb into each night, just totally exhausted every night. My electric bill soared as the temperature dropped. <laughs> 
and I spent 10 hour days cleaning, scraping, painting, and tightening up. And then finally, I could put sol solar panels on the roof. So it was hard work, and I spent many, many hours alone. But I was grateful and excited to be in a new home, but frustrated and lonely to spend so much time alone. I needed a sense of community, not a spackle knife, not a paintbrush anymore. So where was that camaraderie I'd enjoyed? You know, when I lived other places, promoting weatherization and solar, working with the Governor's Council on Energy, how was I gonna create a, a network of like-minded friends? Well, I had met people from other towns that were working on energy concerns and I took copious notes and photocopied a lot of information. And then I had an aha moment. Our town could do something similar. Our town could save money and energy. So I made an appointment with the town manager, left my spackle knife behind, brought that information that I had photocopied, and I proposed a plan that could save the town a lot of money, a lot of money, replace all of the street lights with LED bulbs. The town manager straightened up to his full five foot five height and his face suddenly brightened when he heard this. He appeared very, very interested, but he averted his eyes when I handed him the written materials, 12 pages, 12 pages too many. I don't have room to store paper, he said. I'll have to see if I have time for this. <sighs> I clutched the papers tightly as I left his office, discouraged by his reaction, but I was not willing to give up. And then a few weeks later, I discovered that the town didn't have an energy committee. So I got out my pens, my markers, I made colorful posters, advertising a meeting for a new energy committee. And soon, there was a dedicated group. Frank and Fred were brothers that ran a solar company. Renee was a marketing engineer. Uh, Kim was a renewable energy expert and Dana designed wind turbines. I was absolutely delighted, thrilled to realize what incredible resources we had locally. And they were all so enthusiastic and started you know, chattering loudly with possibilities of what we could do. And then my confidence was restored. In fact, I was so excited. I started to sing a little tune in my head. Solar and wind power, LED light bulbs, decrease your demand for fossil fuels now. Save your money, trees, birds, and bees. These are a few of my favorite things. So. I met with the town manager again. He smiled as he assured me, there's absolutely no money available for a citizen's energy committee. Oh, I was exasperated. So I said, okay, um, have you followed up on replacing our streetlights with LED bulbs? I'm very busy, but it's on my to-do list to write an RFP. Uh, did I hear RST, Rochester International Airport, or RFP? What's an RFP? I soon found out its request for proposals. And then I was reassured that the town was taking an important step forward to save money and energy. Back to the energy committee, we looked at our long list and decided to focus on two projects. Renee and I would research LED light bulb conversion for the local residents. 
And Dane and I would look at the town's wind turbine, which sat on a hill with the blades no longer spinning. So it definitely wasn't generating any power. But why didn't it work? That's what we needed to find out. Dana was um, an engineer, very tall, lanky, soft-spoken, thick glasses, and he had designed many wind turbines. So I felt encouraged, especially when he said, fantastic, this is a fantastic opportunity. We met with the town manager who patiently listened to Dana. And then Dana said, can we go look at this wind turbine and see why it doesn't work? And do you have any information available? Yes, I believe we have a file. It will be available for you tomorrow. Finally, the, some support from the town manager. The next day we spent reading dozens and dozens of pages of documents. Finally, I said to Dana, look, this is why it doesn't work. So several phone calls later, we learned it could be, it could be repaired for $4,000. But unfortunately, there was no place in town to recite it where there was enough wind. So next we thought, well, maybe we can find somebody who would want to buy it. And then the town would get all this money and then they would be so happy that they would fund the energy committee. So we contacted communities that had high wind potential on islands and uh, a school that specialized in teaching alternative energy. But their responses were pretty consistent. You want us to pay to move a hundred foot tower with two ton blades. You know, we wish we could help, but we just don't have that kind of money available. Oh. Next, we went to the town council, gave a presentation of options of what to do with this turbine that wasn't spinning anymore and hopefully that they would advertise on the open market and then it would sell. But in the end, the final decision was to scrap it. Ugh, so our hopes were obliterated when the tower was pulled down, smashing in to the ground into a huge contorted mess of scrap metal. And the money that they got for the scrap metal equaled the amount of money it cost to cart it away. So once again, we had no money. This was our mantra, no money. Okay, back to the energy committee. We were not deterred. Renee, the marketing specialist said, I got an idea. Let's get buy-in from the town's residents for this LED streetlight plan. We'll offer them free LED bulbs for their homes. And that way, everyone will know that the, the town is working on, you know, save us money and energy. So we went to a local hardware store, spoke with that store manager. Renee did talking. Hi, my name is Renee. I'm from your town's new energy committee. And we want people to save energy and money. And you can help us with that by offering your customers free LED bulbs for a month of Sundays. It would attract more business. Plus, it's the right thing to do at the right time. The manager smiled. Well, you know, that sounds great, he said. So finally, we got some financial buy-in. What a relief. Coupons were created, which said, come one, come all, get your free LED light bulbs. 
save money, save energy, now available from your local hardware store with every $10 purchase. Good for the month of February. Well, when the town manager heard that the hardware store was gonna be supporting us, he offered to print the coupons for us. The store donated many hundreds of light bulbs. And then many more were donated by my new friend, Ray, who owned a LED lighting company. And then soon that RFP I talked about, the request for proposals was advertised. And I contacted my three favorite LED installers. And voila, one of them was chosen. Actually, it was Ray. Ray's company was chosen. Well, you know what they say, pick two out of three. You can have it cheap, good quality, or fast, but you can only have two of those things. Well, Ray's company was able to accomplish all three. He had the best price, he installed it on time, and he had the best product, which used these night sky ballasts, so it directed the light down so that migrating birds going overhead wouldn't be distracted. And then there was a gala celebration at a local park. The town saved $92,000 the first year, and the project cost $240,000. So that means the payback period was less than three years. Photos were taken as we celebrated. My new friend Ray high-fived me. This was really an amazing accomplishment. Everyone was a winner, everyone. And it was you know, done under three years, oh, happy day. We chortled in our joy. The town manager stood nearby beaming very proudly. It had taken two and a half years since I introduced this idea to its happy completion. And now I wonder, what are we gonna accomplish next? Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. We're so pleased to have you share your first of what we hope will not be your last story with us. And um, another great, so many great lessons in there about uh, the value of persistence when you are doing this kind of hard work and, um, and of community, that this doing this together is what, what works and makes it a joy. All right, so on to our third teller. We have Dave Kellum with us tonight. And Dave came here from Indiana 25 years ago, excited to explore a state that he says he could not find on a map. He has since gotten to know the state well, working for UNH, uh, New Hampshire Audubon, and other environmental groups. This story started in 2003, during a bitterly cold Christmas parade in Exeter, New Hampshire, that he, he envisioned cheering at that moment for a street band that played for all the good causes in our society, like equity, inclusion, and creative expression. The next day, he posted a flyer in a Portsmouth coffee shop to recruit players for this vision, and so began the Leftist Marching Band, or LMB. So many of us know the Leftist Marching Band. They have been playing here for good causes for nearly 20 years in New Hampshire's seacoast and far beyond, really, evolving into a community of over 100 people over the years who lent their talent to make the world a little brighter, a little sillier, and a better place. 
So let's hear more about how it all started with No One Expects the Leftist Marching Band. Welcome, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that intro is a good cliff note. So now, now you're going to hear the rest of the story. So 2003, my first New Hampshire small town holiday parade. And it was one that would shape the next 20 years of my life. You see, my wife and I, and with our six-year-old daughter, moved to Exeter that year. Uh, local parents said the parade was a must-see event. So on that December night, we bundled up and headed downtown. Garland and lights hung across the historic main street. Spectators formed long encampments of chairs, blankets, and thermoses along each side of the street. The parade began with a lone motorcycle cop leading a stoic aged color guard carrying flags of all the armed forces. Then a fleet of town emergency vehicles followed. Police and fire punctuating their arrival with sirens and horns. After this show, the town's softer side sauntered by. Scout troops and gymnastic classes and local business sponsors with tinseled vehicles like a tow truck and a mobile veterinarian and a mobile company van, a moving company van and a realtor in a convertible Ford Mustang. The Exeter School Marching Band provided a musical kick, a medley of Christmas tunes that stoked the crowd uh, for the literal showstopper, Santa Claus on his sleigh pulled by plywood reindeer atop a flatbed tractor trailer. As I watched the show go by, I had trouble cheering along with my fellow Exorians. Maybe it was because I didn't know the truck, the, the tow truck guy, but it went deeper than that. The community that paraded by, I did not see anything to cheer for. Nothing made me feel good. But to be fair, feeling good that year was a challenge. You see, that was the year that bombs fell on Baghdad. We were invading a country because we were told it was full of terrorists ready to pounce with weapons of mass destruction. The Iraqis said, wait, whoa, you got this all wrong. Turned out they were right. However, for many Americans, the itch to avenge 9-11 just needed to be scratched. I was unsettled by it all. I knew it was not just me either. It was journalists digging for the truth on public radio and activists shouting on street corners, even when that was not a popular thing to do. Those are the people I would cheer for, that I would support. So at home that night, I thought about what I could do. Now, I know myself well enough to accept that I will never be Norma Ray, but I am a few things. I'm a drummer who spent a ton of time in high school and college marching bands. A jokester with a rebellious streak, the kind that likes to poke the bear, stick it to the man, annoy the humorless. And I like making, making people who deserve it feel better. Then I visualized a band, a group trumpeting for social justice, rallying for those who fight the good fight, a soundtrack of the streets unifying and uplifting, building proletariat pride. I saw the leftist marching band. But I had a big problem. I didn't know anybody. I was a recent Midwestern transplant. But I did what we all did before social media. I made a flyer. 
Wanted musicians. Leftist marching band seeks players to make some noise. Call Dave to join. And I hung it in the most lefty place I knew, a Turkish coffee shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called Cafe Killam. You can picture this place, Middle Eastern folk music playing from a cassette player behind the register, Turkish rugs hanging on the walls aside funky eclectic art, all of it coated with an aromatic patina of incense smoke and really strong coffee. It was two days later when I received a call. You, Dave? Yep. I want to join the band. Her name was Helena. She told me she was a fusion belly dancing artist who lived in a mill building studio across the river. She had been a twirler in high school, and she, she had what she called a smoking hot pair of majorette boots. I said, you're in. She then asked, who else is in the band? I said, well, there's you and me. And she said, you should talk to John Bailey. Now, I never heard of John Bailey, but most people in Portsmouth scene knew him well. A charismatic, fun-loving guy with boyish good looks who started a successful bicycle messenger bag business downtown. During my lunch break, I walked into his shop, flyer in hand. He greeted me as he stood up from behind a sewing machine. I handed him a flyer and he said, and I said, Helena sent me. His blue eyes twinkled and he said, I'm listening. John instantly understood the concept, a band of merriment of the community, delivering musical satiric jabs to the establishment. No one expects the leftist marching band, was his favorite line. For the next several months, he and I met in bars all across town, drafting charters, designing logos, making business cards, and recruiting players. He knew teachers, bartenders, computer programmers, firefighters, writers, librarians, carpenters, even a few professional musicians. All had instruments they wanted to play, and they were ready to make some noise. The first rehearsals were in Helena's studio. I love seeing people's faces when they came through the doorway for the first time. They showed excitement, eagerness, and a little bit of fear. They were like moths to a flame. They knew it was a little dangerous, but irresistible nonetheless. The first gig. By May, the group resembled a band. Two trombones, a trumpet, a flute, a piccolo, a snare drum, and of course, a majorette. At one after-practice beer, someone said that on Monday, Massachusetts was expected to legally recognize same-sex marriage. We all agreed that deserved to be heralded. So on Monday afternoon, we assembled across the street from Cafe Killam in front of a federal building housing the post office, IRS, and the FBI. In mismatched patriotic attire and revolutionary tricorn hats, we formed a semicircle and faced the street. I was just waiting for the cops to show up and hustle us away. Brum-bum, brum-bum, brum-bum. I played the roll off, launching us into You're a Grand Old Flag. Helena's belly dancing hips kept time. John's trombone slid through most of the notes, and the rest honked and tweeted, creating a heartfelt salute to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. After the last note, everyday street noise returned. No one stopped to listen. The cops never showed, but we were happy. 
I'd like to think the FBI started a file on us that day because we had really started something. Over the next 20 years, the LMB grew. Over 100 people had played at least once in the band. They've been way too many gigs to count, but here's a few. Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade, the Rockingham County Nursing Home, Women's March in Portsmouth, a radical theater in Montreal, and the Bush Family Compound in Kenny Bunkport, Maine. But those are all stories to be told another day. I got what I wanted, something to cheer for on the streets and kindred souls to do it with, a pet band of the people whose music is better than it sounds. Thanks. Thank you, Dave. Um, and how fun. I didn't really realize there's going to be that connection between Dave's story in there. When I heard Joe start out, I was like, oh my gosh, that's going to be great. Oh, awesome. Um, so, folks, we this is our, we've got about 10, not quite 10 minutes where we're going to do a little Q&A and we are going to show some pictures. Um, so please go ahead and start using the chat. Um, and just so you know, Dave is going to be interviewed by David a little bit later. So we'll, we'll hear more of that. <clears throat> I know it's actually raise your hand if you have heard in the leftist marching band. Raise your hand if you've played with the leftist marching band. All right. Good, good. Fun. Definitely. Um, yes, many of us know and love the leftist marching band. Okay, so um, we'll circle back to that. The first question here is for Joe. And Joe, we just got to know who ended up getting you a blender? Of course, having said all I wanted was a small stone, nobody got me a blender. I found a really good one for a dollar in the local thrift shop, and it lasted for a while. And then I'm blushing to say, after 10 years, we had Amazon. Okay. <laughs> So you got yourself one in the end. It's the problem with uh, being so clear. You didn't want one. Got to be really self-sufficient in this world. Can't count on people to give you what you need. You know, they, they don't have that kind of insult. Besides, I didn't want to tell anybody I needed a blender. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, and now let's circle back to the leftist marching band. Um, Dave, can you share, let's see, what did it say here? Your most, uh, some surprising, let's just not, it doesn't have to be the most, but um, what are some surprising gigs that you had, the LMB? And maybe while you do that, I'm going to start sharing some pictures here and there. So you you start talking and I'll, I'll uh, illustrate here in a minute. Yeah, no, that sounds perfect. And, and, and I know there are some players in the audience. So um, yeah, you know, forgive me for for not covering everything and especially so I was I started and was in the band for many years and then I took a break for a while and I've recently came back and one of the best things is how great it is to connect right away 
back up into the band and especially with all the new players because we share a common bond but anyway um the one that i uh, there there's several that we often tell one was we were opening for john Kerry. he was flying into pease airport and we showed up while he was was coming in and uh, we were there with lots of other people and it was late at night and the security had kind of routed us off to the side. They really never let us anywhere near and close to where anything was happening. But uh, they put us off in this gated area. And at that point, we were pretty used to getting hassled by the police because they didn't quite know what to expect with us. And um, but we started our performance. And by that time, Helena was twirling fl a flaming baton. So it was very spectacular at night. She had this flaming baton that was going and, you know, we're playing patriotic tunes and the crowd is all really into it. And uh, sure enough, cop comes over and starts, you know, kind of yelling at us, you know, and we're playing full volume, grand old flag, those kind of things, which is always hard to run somebody off if they're playing a patriotic tune. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we're playing along. We're like, yeah, yeah, hold on. Let us finish. Let us finish. He's like, no, you got to move. You got to move. And we, and we were putting him off and he goes, you're on jet fuel. You're standing on jet fuel. And we were, we were standing on top of an underground tank full of jet fuel with a twirling flaming baton. And we're like, you know what? That, that, that's a good reason. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Fair enough. Yep. So, so we, uh, we moved. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's not quite the same as uh, back when they kept pushing us into the what do they call them the free speech zones or what, what were the cages yeah. they put us free in right? Free speech zones. Yep. Okay. Yep. Free speech yes. zones. The uh, Republican National Convention down in Boston, we were routed into a free speech zone, which was a cage far away from where the action was happening. We ended up breaking out and going down to the Commons, where there was a lot of action down there. But this this picture here is the, the Halloween parade in Portsmouth, which is always great. And every year it's it's a huge struggle to figure out a theme. Obviously, we went a little demonic on this one. I don't think I was at this one, but we have uh, we have audience members there. John Mayer is in there. Drew Carson's in there. I think I got everybody. Um, but yeah, it's always a challenge to actually agree on something as leftists, but, uh, we were able to do that. How about this one? Oh, that's down in Boston. Uh, oh, that's the veterans for peace. Uh, that could be, I don't know, John Mayer, do you recall exactly when that was? Yeah, everybody. Um, we were invited by the vets for peace to lead them during the Boston Veterans Day Parade and um, sort of a sad, you know, aspect of the Veterans for Peace. They were excluded from marching with the, the formal group. And what would happen is the street sweepers would follow the former parade and then the Veterans for Peace could, could step off. So they were, they asked if the leftist marching band would lead the music for them, which we did. And actually we got a lot of compliments because the music that we provided was much better than the music that the main parade had, but <laughs> did that for a number of years. And um, we're really proud to be supporting the Vets for Peace during Veterans Day parades in Boston. So this was one of the gigs that we did that. Fabulous. 
That is great. That one spoke to me as a peace activist. And actually, I want to share another here that to me, because where I most often saw you all play would have to be Market Square Portsmouth, um, <laughs> which I was for about 10 years, every Friday night, that was at a, you know, we had a peace vigil there and you all came and entertained us on numerous occasions, which was um, really wonderful. Um, I don't know if you know what exactly this one is. There's been a I'll lot bet. of them. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet there's a, been a ton of them. Yeah. But that was during a period I wasn't there. I recognize some of the other one of the other drummers, I don't realize, I don't know who's playing the trash can as Oscar the Grouch, but he is awesome. <laughs> that is great. And the next question here we have is, how do you join the leftist marching band? Because <laughs> this is not just in the past. This is an ongoing phenomenon, right? So tell us, <laughs> tell folks how to do that. You know, and that is the key is that it's this ever evolving thing. So to join, all you have to do is to be able to play something, um, but mostly have a passion to get out into the street and make some noise and and be be part of the the legacy, I guess it is at this point. Uh, like I said, over 100 people, I think, have come in and and played. So it's really easy. You show up to. um well, John Mayer, what's the official way now for people to to start coming to play? Um, thanks, Dave. Well, we have a website, so people can contact us through leftistmarchingband.org. There's a place you can just send a note, and we'll greet you and welcome you in. Band rehearses Monday nights at 6.30 every week. And, um, you know, it, I had when I started in the band, I hadn't played my horn for about 30 years. And I found the group really welcoming. Um, it's really nothing as energizing as getting out and playing for a good cause and being part of a, a really vibrant community. Um, so the website's the best. You know, there's a way to contact us there. Some people can also find us on Facebook, but I um you know, go to leftistmarchingband.org and, and check us out. Awesome. Thank you. Great. So, so everyone, you write that down and go, go check it out. Um, because we know we, there's uh, at least as much need for the leftist marching band now as there was when it started 20 years ago. And I actually think it's kind of um, fitting that today, um, not just today, but even today, the um, Iraq AUMF is being debated in the Senate, mm. the repeal, the possible repeal of the legislation that led to the, the wars in Iraq is um, being worked on. So unbelievable. And hopefully, hopefully will be repealed any day now. So um, it's, you know, the persistence that Julia, you know, kind of spoke to for us in her story. We all know that's what it takes. And we are so glad to be entertained and uplifted while doing this long haul kind of work. So well, thank you. Well, one of the Go things that, that always struck me with the LMB was that, and I, and I got a little bit to it, is that it's a place for those that, you know, that 
had a skill in music, you know, they were in school band or something like that. And they want to, they want to contribute to this, but they aren't, they aren't necessarily going to be holding signs and things like that. I, I think it's just such a great way. It's a many ways, right? There's many ways to support a community. There's many ways to, to, to get through life. And I, I just think it provides a way for, um, yeah, a lot of people, I think. Absolutely. That's fabulous. So we're going to hear more from Dave, um, but I have some things to say first. Um, let me start. Actually, we wanted to play you some of their music. However, because this show is put on YouTube and on on, you know, public TV, not uh, community TV, we um, we have to be careful of coffee copyright issues. So here's the thing. If you hang in with us for the next 20 minutes, we're going to have our regular dance party. We're going to have the interview. And then at the end, we will play some leftist marching band music that we will then just cut out for the actual, the, the part that goes out there. So those of you in the live audience are going to have this opportunity. So hang in for that. But I have some things to share with you first. Um, let's see here. First of all, just thank you all so much for being here tonight, especially our tellers and our live audience. We are soon to move on to, to, to that interview and some other things, but first, please save the date for our in-person fundraiser, Friday, June 30th, starting at 6.30 p.m. at the Senior Center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We are looking forward to bringing together five or six of our storytellers to entertain you. It will be really great to actually see some folks in person again. It's been a few years and we'll hope that we hope that you'll spread the word about it. Um, more info will be on our website and Facebook page really soon. Because there are costs associated with putting it together, we would love your help before the event. If you're able to make a donation, even a small one to us, truetaleslivenh.org, click on the donate button and we will and if you'd rather send a check you know send us an email we'll we'll set that up for you too our next true tales live zoom show is on tuesday april 25 at 7 p.m the theme being one thing leads to another you can go to truetaleslivenh.org to find the link to register to be in the audience um april's show is full but our dates and themes for 2023 are posted on our website Please go check them out and send us your story proposals. Most shows are going to be on Zoom. So even if you're far away, we'd love to hear from you. We encourage you to attend one of our monthly Zoom workshops, usually on the first Tuesdays from 7 to 8.30. Um, so the next one will be a week from today. Someone can look up that date for me, April. I'm not going to guess. Um, first Tuesday of April. Contact us at info at truetaleslivenh.org to become a teller and to find out more. See truetaleslivenh.org for the link to the work workshop registration as well. Watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and anytime as video on demand or podcast. Again, that website is where you go to access all of it, truetaleslivenh.org. Let's take a moment and thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, 
David Frainer, Sarah Beddingfield, Sam Adams, Tom Osberg, Tina Charpentier. I'm Amy Antonucci, and before we move to the backstory interview of Dave Kellum by David Frainer, please join us for a minute of movement to shake off our Zoom cobwebs here. This is our um, our tradition, our, our, our online tradition of the True Tales Dance Party. It's literally 60 seconds of music when we get to get up and move around. Um, we'd love it if you have your video on so we can see each other. And even if you just want to sit and do this, go for it. Um, you might also want to switch to gallery view so you can see each other. And I am going to pass it on to John to get that part started for us. You ready, John? Play it for us, John. 